I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Thank you so much. It is a terrific honour to participate in this lecture series which brings together two of our foremost cultural and intellectual institutions, the London Review of Books and the British Museum. So thank you so much for the invitation and thank you all for coming on this freezing day to listen. Well done. My concern this evening will not be to discuss history's broad value as a discipline, so much as to advance a more specific set of claims. Namely, that paying attention to certain aspects and processes of the past can improve how we approach and deal with some of the challenges facing us in the present. In particular, I shall argue, History can help us towards a more considered understanding of how change has happened and enhance how we assess and respond to it now. I want to touch on these points first in general terms and then move on to some of the changes that are confronting us in the UK today. At one level, and as has already been pointed out, All of us are saturated with information on change. There is 24-hour news, Twitter, Facebook and other online services transmit the latest high-profile occurrences across the globe on a second-by-second basis. Those of us old-fashioned enough still to want newspapers can scan them on screen at any time. Yet this blizzard of material easily produces a sense of overload, I think, even powerlessness, a feeling that simultaneously we are being told too much, yet we are able to grasp too little. So one vital respect in which history helps is by making us look away from the blitz of ever-shifting news stories and look instead at what has proved genuinely significant in the past. Once we do this, we are immediately reminded that most really game-changing transformations happen only slowly. Minute-by-minute change is substantially a media illusion. To be sure, 
there have been a few genuinely world-changing events that seem to have happened in an instant. The men who dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima in Japan in 1945 were in fact deploying technology and science that had been evolving for decades. Nonetheless, in carrying out this act, the US airmen involved did effect an almost immediate transformation in the nature of warfare and in attitudes towards it. Many momentous changes, however, have taken literally centuries to work themselves out. Consider the terrible outbreak of plague in the 14th century, now known as the Black Death. Europe suffered disproportionately from this, losing perhaps 50%, half of its total population. As a result of this horrendous level of mortality, however, the living standards and wage levels of those Europeans who managed to survive seem often to have improved. This, it has been suggested, led in time to a marked increase in European consumption of food and demand for consumer goods. And this post-Black Death rise in demand may well in turn have contributed to the expansion in the number of European trading voyages into the world's oceans in the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries. As this illustrates... Big processes of change may take centuries to work through. Moreover, and I will come back to this, however appalling at the time, even traumatic shifts in human history can have mixed, sometimes creative repercussions. So, Epic changes are very occasionally rapid, but in some cases stretch over centuries. It is more common, though, for the results of major changes to become apparent within the canonical span of a human lifetime, three score years and ten or so. Consider, for instance, the dramatic levels of change that have occurred in Germany in the 70 or so years since the Second World War and the multiple multinational consequences of this. Or consider the post-war experience of Sweden, which is where I've been spending the past few months. Here is another brilliant example of a country transforming itself within the space of a single lifetime. 70 or so years ago, Sweden was still very much on the margins. In the 1930s, 60% of its population 
still worked in agriculture and many of them were very poor. The country had long since lost its empire and in the 19th century had been forced to give up some of its customary territory. In the Second World War, its reputation suffered further from the Nazi sympathies of sectors of its population. But then consider Sweden now, in the early 21st century, a place of ultra-modernity in the arts, technology and design, affluent, comfortably in the top ten, year after year, in tables of the happiest countries in the world, a place that is adroit and effective in its exercise of soft power, as with its use of the Nobel Prize Awards and its championship of neutrality and ecological good causes. Now, of course, and as the Scandinoir thrillers remind us, Sweden is not perfect, and Russian armies may challenge it in the future as they have done in the past. Nonetheless, Sweden's progress since 1945 has been a startling one, <clears throat> and this alerts us to the potential helpfulness of history in a double sense. First, looking hard at countries which have successfully reinvented themselves in the past and studying the tricks and adaptations whereby they have done so is a useful and cheering thing to do, not least in this particular country at this particular time. We can and should learn from others. <clears throat> Second, the degree of transformation that some societies and peoples have achieved within the span of a single human lifetime offers a powerful corrective to the sort of essentialism so often preached today by populist politicians and commentators. Populists often like to represent particular territories and sets of people in terms of unchanging and finite sets of characteristics, either out of boosterism or as a means to marginalise and condemn. Thus Sarah Palin, one-time right-wing governor of Alaska, liked to refer to her supporters as real Americans, as though such unadulterated beings existed and as though her opponents were somehow not real or American. By the same token, the leading populist party in Finland used to call itself the true Finns, as though other Finns were not part of an essential Finnish nation. Now, given the bitter polarization of political allegiances at present, it is especially important to remember that national groupings have never been homogeneous and are rarely ever static. Of course, 
there are some persistent and significant habits and patterns of thought and behavior in all long-standing states. But countries and their populations are not just generally mixed in terms of ethnicity, politics, religion, and much more. They also change over time, sometimes radically and rapidly so. Swedes today are very different from Swedes back in 1940. So whenever you hear people saying things like, the British people are, followed by a set of asserted characteristics, or Americans have always been, etc., etc., having a sense of history will help to summon up a tonic dose of scepticism. Now, thus far, I've been speaking about change in general terms. But what are the triggers of dramatic episodes of change? Savage outbreaks of disease can be a trigger, as we've seen. So can significant alterations in climate. Some quantum shifts in technology, such as the invention of printing in China, have triggered long-drawn-out transcontinental changes. So have signal economic disruptions and major shifts in the nature of belief and ideology such as the Reformation or communism. But perhaps the most recurrent and paradoxical precipitant of critical levels of change in human society has been war. It is a cliché of political science that states make war and that war in turn has the capacity to make and remake states. It is not always true. Wars sometimes destroy states and peoples altogether. Nonetheless, major outbreaks of war have very often obliged states to reconfigure themselves, sometimes in productive ways. Only think of the world wars of the 20th century, horrendous, lethal episodes, but also in some ways formative. In 1914, no woman in Britain could vote in national elections. Even as far as men were concerned, this country had one of the lowest levels of enfranchisement in Europe. Many of the men who died for the UK during the First World War had never been able to vote for the governments that sent them off to fight. By 1919, however, in the wake of the Representation of the People Act, Virtually all men over 21 and most women over 30 in the UK had gained the vote. 
The First World War was not the sole or a straightforward reason for this change, but it was a major factor. By the same token, World War II transformed levels of welfareism on both sides of the Atlantic, helping to bring about the national health system here and the GI Bill in the United States, which eased mass access to further education. The impact of these wars outside Euro-America were even more portentous. Agitation against European and non-European empires was on the rise well before 1914. But the World War's weakening of the power and finances of the various maritime empires, Britain, France, Germany, the Dutch, Portugal, Japan and others, allowed decolonization to advance far faster than it otherwise would have done. Countries involved in these wars that were already independent experienced different levels of change as a result of them. In general and unsurprisingly, those that were invaded or defeated tend to experience the most fundamental change. Thus Germany, Japan and France all gained new political constitutions after 1945 as a result of being defeated and occupied during or after the war. By contrast, neither the United Kingdom, which was seemingly a victor power, nor the USA, which was certainly a victor power, changed its political system in the wake of World War II. Instead, in both of these countries, victory served for a while to burnish and strengthen their existing political order. Both the United Kingdom and the United States, indeed, have over the centuries been almost too successful in their frequent recourse to war, something which has had mixed repercussions for their political systems and democracy. In the United States, success against the British in the Revolutionary War led to the drafting of the American Constitution of 1787, a brief but remarkable document. Thereafter, there were many more U.S. war victories. A further repulsion of the British in the War of 1812, ruthlessly successful expansionist wars against Native Americans and Mexicans, a civil war which was bloody but which did not result in the U.S. fragmenting. Yet more victories in overseas colonial wars and in the two world wars, a record that was only really marred by the Vietnam War and Iraq, both restricted and strictly overseas struggles. This conspicuous American success rate on the battlefield hoped, helped to cement into being 
the political system that had been established in 1787 and that had been subject thereafter to only a limited number of amendments. The USA now possesses the oldest written constitution still in operation in the world, which is an achievement to be sure, but also by now arguably a source of difficulty. The 1787 Constitution said nothing about the operation of political parties in the United States. This lacuna was manageable so long as the main U.S. parties were similar in much of their outlook and were prepared to abide by certain gentlemanly conventions. Today, these conditions no longer apply and we have seen the gridlock that has ensued. Similarly, the famous Second Amendment passed in 1791, allowing US citizens access to arms, was manageable when most firearms in circulation were muskets that took minutes to load. Obviously, this is no longer the case. So while it may be tempting to attribute current political dysfunctionalities in the USA to particular personalities, some of the root causes are long-term, structural, and connected to this country's experience of war. Military success has helped foster a certain American constitutional stasis and complacency. In some respects, the United Kingdom exhibits comparable problems, but to a more pronounced degree. Like the USA, but over a longer period of time, The UK has been both a markedly warlike state and generally a successful one. In the mid-17th century, to be sure, England and its contiguous nations experienced a bloody civil war that briefly made it a republic. In 1688, Britain also experienced a successful Dutch-led invasion a crisis that ultimately strengthened the power of the Westminster Parliament vis-à-vis the Crown. But thereafter, the island of Britain, as distinct from the island of Ireland, experienced no enduringly successful foreign invasions. And with the exception of the American Revolutionary War, no really major overseas military defeats. As a result, here, even more than in the United States, old structures of politics were able to persist. Yes, the electorate steadily widened, though only slowly, but the House of Commons, the House of Lords, The monarchy, 
the preeminence of London, and certain conventions of political and electoral practice, these things endured. In recent centuries, there have been no catastrophic defeats, no civil wars, no successful invasions of Britain itself to force a major process of political reconfiguration as distinct from limited and ad hoc adjustments. And this raises a set of questions and possibilities. I've been suggesting in this lecture that traumatic changes can take a long time to work out and can have paradoxical and sometimes positive results. I have suggested, too, that America's iconic and insufficiently amended Constitution of 1787 may have been overly preserved in amber for an overlong period of time in part because of that country's marked level of success on its many battlefields. I have further argued that in these islands too, the UK, high levels of military success over an even longer period of time are part of the reason why political institutions and structures here have proved unusually resilient. Might it be the case that this political stability has to some degree become overpronounced? That by not having to adjust and alter its political system, as so many other countries have had to do. The UK, as a result, has stored up certain unaddressed problems and unhelpful stagnancies. If so, might the convulsions and divisions over Brexit conceivably have some tonic effect Might this bitterly divisive and presumably long-lasting change turn out to be the painful modernizer that military defeats and invasions have sometimes, sometimes proved to be as far as other countries are concerned? Exactly what Brexit will entail remains, of course, unclear and if anything, is becoming more so. Some believe that after preliminary discomforts, the results will be very positive. Others believe we are doomed. A growing number of pundits and activists argue now that the decision for Brexit may be reversed or that some sort of compromise solution may be hammered out. Yet others, even in the cabinet, assert that Brexit won't make much difference at all, which raises the obvious question of why are we doing it? (laughs) This 
lack of clarity has been exacerbated by an overly narrow focus thus far on economic and commercial questions. I am not a politician or an economist, obviously, only a historian who makes no claim to predict the future. But let me draw on my sense of the past and on some of the arguments I have been setting out this evening in regard to change to suggest a somewhat different perspective on Brexit to the ones that I have just brutally summarised. By instinct, I am a Remainer, but I think that some form of Brexit is probably now unavoidable. If this does turn out to be the case, I also suspect that the resulting disruptions and realignments will extend to far more than just the economy. And so the trick will be to see if this can be turned to any good, or at least to something halfway productive. Vernon Bogdanor has already hinted at some ways in which Brexit may, may conceivably have some constructive, though unpredictable, effects in a recent pamphlet on its constitutional ramifications. As is becoming clear, and as he sets out, Ireland is a major challenge for Brexiters, and not just for reasons of cross-border trade. The Good Friday Agreement promised Northern Ireland parity of rights with the Republic of Ireland. But if the UK pulls out of the EU these Northern Irish rights will no longer be protected by Brussels and the European courts, but will come back substantially to Westminster. And by the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, Westminster would arguably be free in the future to modify those rights. Indeed, these challenges extend to all of the UK. The British government has undertaken to incorporate relevant sections of EU law and rights in statute law here. But the same caveat applies. Such incorporation would mean that these transferred rights and laws would become amenable in the future to a sovereign parliament that might perhaps select at some point to alter them. This is why some thoughtful politicians, I think, for instance, of Dominic Grieve, are proposing a new British Bill of Rights in the event of Brexit so as to protect vital rights against any future legislative tinkering. This might be a good idea, What would also be valuable would be if more UK citizens and all UK political parties shifted some of their focus from purely economic matters, and and some are beginning to do this, and devote more attention to the political, structural, 
and legal vulnerabilities and quandaries that have been exposed by this crisis and to the question of how these are to be addressed. Taking back control sounds alluring, but we need to think hard about who exactly post-Brexit is going to be doing the controlling and how these potential controllers are themselves to be better controlled. Because I return to a point I have already touched on, that because of Britain's relative immunity to invasion and defeat, the longevity of some of its political structures has been unusually marked. Brexit, however, is likely to prove a tipping point, sharpening issues to do with federalism, with undue executive power, and with the need for clearer written rights. And we have to give thought to these things. All sorts. Now, I was going to say, in other ways too, Brexit, I think, is is likely to resemble Pandora's box. All sorts of new and disruptive and alarming things will emerge from it in the future that thus far our political masters have devoted only scant public attention to. Consider the prospect that is being offered us post-Brexit of a new global Britain. If global Britain is to be anything more than a slogan, a fig leaf over a new parochialism, all sorts of changes will be necessary, and not just in the realm of commerce. For instance, if there is to be a more global Britain, people in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland will ideally have to become a lot more multilingual than most of them are at present. Membership of the EU has been an easy ride in the sense that English is its main language of business and exchange. As you know, you can get by with monolingual English in most European cities. But monolingual English will become an increasing problem if you want to interact much more with cities in China, India, South America, parts of Africa, and Japan. Consequently, many more children in the UK are going to have to do, presumably, what their counterparts in other parts of Europe and regions outside it already do, namely conquer at least two languages at school and ideally more. History can offer some help with this. Because history makes clear that any notion that Britons are somehow intrinsically bad at learning foreign languages 
is a recent and bogus invented tradition. In the 19th century, many politicians in this country laid confident claim to several languages. William Gladstone, the four times liberal prime minister, writes his biographer, Roy Jenkins, was convinced, I quote, that an educated Englishman ought to be able to communicate in all the principal languages of civilized Europe, so he did. Gladstone's attitude to modern languages, Jenkins goes on, was reminiscent of a tank cutting its way through undergrowth. Actors in Britain's overseas empire, of course, needed much more than just European languages. Sir John Bowring, the fourth governor of Hong Kong, claimed to speak 100 languages and dialects and was certainly fluent in over 30. But you you may protest such men were exceptional elite figures. True enough. But there's plenty of evidence in the past of British and Irish plebeian multilingualism too. Sailors here, for instance, were famous for often picking up speaking skills in multiple languages because they moved about and needed them for their trade and employment. And we are perhaps moving back into that kind of world. Because even leaving aside Brexit for a moment, given the advance of robotics and the degree to which this will radically alter the nature and volume and location of employment opportunities, as many people as possible here are going to need to learn how to operate in different places using different languages. It will also help them enormously if they know something about the history of these different places. Recently, a government spokesman was quoted as arguing that UK universities should charge students less for taking arts and social science courses since these subjects, quote, do little to boost careers or the economy. Leaving aside for the moment the fact that studying the arts and social sciences represents a vital intellectual concern. Such a view is wrong and short-sighted, even in utilitarian and economic terms. If there is going to be any kind of globally involved Britain in the future, people are going to need to study history widely just as they will need to study languages and a whole lot more. You cannot hope to do effective business with other peoples if you do not understand their language and if you have no knowledge 
of their home societies and of how and why these have evolved. This great museum is a triumphant example of why knowledge of the world's multiple histories matters and of how very rich that knowledge is. Now, as Richard Evans has pointed out, 20th century British-based historians were conspicuous in producing important work on the history of other countries, especially European countries. But in recent decades, there seems at times to have been a contraction of scope and range. And anyway, it is not anymore just European history that demands our attention. The history of China, Japan, Africa, Central Asia, South America, India, Indonesia, and other regions is becoming ever more important for an understanding of how our world is working out. Yet, ranging over these multiple territories is is obviously a very hard thing to do, not least because of the current pressure on resources. There seem now to be fewer scholars in UK universities working on South America, for instance, than there were back in the 1980s. An informal survey carried out in 2011 found that three quarters of historians employed in UK universities worked only on the European past, of whom a disproportionate number focused on the home islands. So I think it's shifted a bit since then. In our schools, getting children to learn something of the past of the wider world is even more challenging, in part because of the nature of the curriculum. In Britain, unlike in many other parts of Europe, history is only a compulsory subject up to the age of 13. Given that the prevailing cult of over-testing also crowds out a great deal of lesson time. School children, as a consequence, have only limited opportunities for learning about how different sectors of our world have evolved. Something which, as I say, is an absolutely vital part of coping with the 21st century. There are some not overly expensive steps that might be taken partly to redress this. History could and should be made a compulsory school subject for longer. Testing could be cut back, thereby allowing more time in schools for language learning as well as for more history. A future new reign 
which presumably will happen sometime, could be commemorated by the foundation with commercial sponsorship, if necessary, of three or four new Regis chairs in global history. These chairs would ideally be situated not in the ancient universities, but in universities in cities that once played important global roles and might in some new respects do so again. Birmingham, Glasgow, Sheffield, Cardiff, Manchester, Belfast, or such like. It could be made a condition of holding such a Regis chair in global history that the holder would present a course of accessible lectures on the non-European past and that this lecture series would be made generally available online and regularly redone and remade. It might also be a condition that these Regis professors of global history could help UK schools to evolve workable syllabi on this vast but necessary subject. With imagination, thought and will, and it is, I believe, more a matter of imagination, thought and will than of money, this and much more might be done. I have talked this evening of the meanings of change in the past, of how change has normally taken a long time to work out, and of how even traumatic changes have sometimes had productive and paradoxical consequences. If Brexit happens, the impact of that change is likely also to take a very long time to work out. We cannot remotely know at present what all those consequences will be, though we can be certain that they will be wider and deeper than is suggested by most current political and media buzz. And we can make plans and projects to meet some of the changes that are likely to ensue. If we are to do this properly, I would argue and insist, history will not just help it will be indispensable. Thank you. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open.